So this podcast is presented by Owen Walker and Rich McGurr and is a Medics Academy podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide paramedics an easy to access set of resources and educational materials wherever they are. So feel free to take a look at the description in the footnotes of the podcast and sign up to Medics Academy today to find out even more about what we do and just how much content we put out there for your education. Many thanks. Welcome to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Owen Walker, and my colleague, friend, and um, what else are you? Confidant. Confidant. Hi guys, Rich McGuire here. Uh, Welcome along. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the pros and cons of intubation, of uh, paramedic intubation in the pre-hospital care environment. So without further ado, I will kick off. If that's okay, um, and what we what we wanted to tackle initially was quite um, quite interestingly um, a couple of months ago the consensus statement came out from um, the um, College of Paramedics and um, it was the consensus statement around intubation and whether it was advantageous or not um, to patients uh, and so this was made up from a variety of uh, of national. Um, um, well-known figures, so um, paramedic consultants to professors in pre-hospital care and uh, and from some well-known um, paramedic-led um, uh, establishments within the university uh, spheres. And so they came up with a, a summary uh, and conclusion for the consensus statement around um, paramedic practice and paramedic intubation. So it'd just be interesting just to dig down, dig dig into that, and just have a quick chat and and see what we find. So, Rich, what um, what in your mind? What are the take homes from the consensus statement that yeah. you can think of? Because I've got a few take homes, but yeah. I just want to. Yeah, I mean, from I mean, this first of all, I think this is this is just a hugely contentious issue. See, this this gets paramedics really fired up, yeah. um, really fired up. But I, um, part of me understands why. Yeah. Part of me doesn't. I think it's it's important for us to understand that it is just a skill. Yeah. It isn't. It isn't what makes paramedics, and it's perhaps come been come to define what a paramedic is and a paramedic is someone that intubates a patient because actually there's very few other medical professionals that will do that and can do that but actually that isn't what a paramedic is we're much more than that as a profession um, but at the moment that is kind of what how we see ourselves and it does really rile people up but yeah so talking about the consensus statement I think um, the main thing that I draw from the point of view actually the paramedic intubation is something that should and could continue mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's about how we do it and where we do it um, and and what the governance around that is um, and I think we have to professionally we have to have a sensible look at how often it's done mm. by each practitioner mm. and actually is that enough to keep those skills up and to make you proficient or isn't it and the consensus statement generally draws around the line that perhaps we should be looking at paramedic intubation being done by smaller subsets of professionals within your trust uh, with much more regular exposure to that sort of thing to increase your hit rate. Uh, because unfortunately, when you look at the research, and, you, and the research created in the statement, um, consensus statement, success rate for first pass for paramedics is lower than where it should be. Yeah. 
And I think as a profession, we need to we need to improve that if we're going to keep this skill as a widespread skill. Yeah, absolutely. We're not going to move it to to more specialist groups. Yeah, I do. I, I heartily agree. So I think there's some really interesting points you touched on with that consensus statement. One is that there is no nationally agreed standard, so there is no um, no ubiquitous standard across the country which can agree or has agreed on whether it's advantageous or not, and that's acknowledged within the consensus statement. Um, uh, but but actually, um, what I what I acknowledge the College of Paramedics for doing is sort of stepping up and making it, you know, and formalising a, a consensus statement just to clear it up, really, as because as, as you said, Rich, there's a lot of controversy, there's a lot of passion around yeah. uh, around um, intubation and whether paramedics should be doing it. Um, and so the consensus statement says that paramedics should be doing it. Uh, just the, the take-home message I got from this was that, that, we, that we should be doing it. But as you said, that there should be a group of, maybe a group of clinicians that are doing it that are uh, frequently subject to uh, a cohort of patients where they're doing it on, that there should be a documented airway log or evidence of, 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 uh, of practice so yeah. that they can evidence how many times they have um, put uh, intubated patients and also just um, also it, it, the, the consensus statement is really good at acknowledging some of the safeguarding methods that we use to confirm um, intubation so so that of concomitant use of ETCO2 um, looking at um, lo- looking at, uh, at uh, the uh, advantageous um, use of uh, listening to breath sounds across the across the chest uh, both on both sides um, looking at um, the uh, both the capnography and the uh, cap- capnometry so the capnometry being the numer- numerical score on the life pack 15 or the whatever um, monitor you're using the capnography being the box waveform that you use as you are uh, intubating the patient and oh no, it, the, the consensus statement also, I think, you know, addresses a really vital part of what we were talking about in the previous episode, which is that of non-technical skills, that of sharing the mental model, that having an airway assistant in place, someone who's briefed to pass you the bougie, using a bougie, using a bougie every time, um, but just really, uh, really being able to instill that audit trail so that we can we can prove to external bodies and internal ones that we're competent in, in, in doing the skill. Because it's kind of like me coming up to you, Rich, and saying, um, okay, so I'm a general surgeon. Uh, I'm here today to take your spleen out. Yep. I do this procedure maybe once a year yeah um but i'm sure it'll be fine yeah, it'll be fine i'll i'll i i think i know where the spleen is and, yeah, just, uh, um so it, you know if you liken it to some in hospital practices you would you would hope that that general surgeons take spleens out more than maybe once a year um if it's well if at all they're taking spleens out anymore they're maybe not doing <laughs> but just doing procedures because I, I think the average paramedic was that when they did an audit of it, it was it was 1.5 times yeah, a year like it's quite, it's quite um, a low number so a low yeah. low number and i think it's important when you when you talk about audit trials own actually that that professionally you need a bit of self-reflection with how you do and what you do yeah um and i know people are passionate about it but holding on to a skill that we don't do very often um you know can, can be dangerous and cause problems for the patient uh, and there, there are no paramedics out there, or, or a tiny, tiny number maybe. But we all turn up to work to do the best for the patient. That's what we want. And having this, this, this dogged um, determination to keep a skill that perhaps we're not doing enough, 
or perhaps we're not now good enough at um, through ver for various different reasons from teaching through everything else uh, perhaps isn't helping the patient and we need to look at the evidence around whether it does help the patient whether it doesn't the evidence around how it's taught uh, and the evidence around how we improve it and if we're not technically good enough at that skill we need to recognize that within ourselves yeah uh, and be the people that lead in adding or taking this skill away yeah uh, paramedics should be doing the research we should be looking at ourselves Great. we're a big enough body now people have been doing this job long enough and there's plenty of paramedics out with their PhDs MSCs etc uh, we need to be looking at how we do it and why we do it and then deciding for ourselves where our practice goes um, which at the moment we're still not quite there doing that and certainly even with paramedic intubation a lot of it's being led from outside of the profession um, for various different reasons, pros and cons. Uh, but we all need to be doing that, looking at how good we are. My own success rate with, with, with passing ET teachers, if it's not high enough, I need to get better. Yeah. We all need to do that. I dare say there's very few paramedics out there that know truly what their first pass rate is. And that's not their fault, they don't know their own system. That they haven't had feedback. That way. Yeah, yeah, they haven't had the yeah. feedback. Yeah. Systems need to be governed in a way yeah. that allows you to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And until we do that, moving on and moving forward is difficult yeah and so something that the consensus statement addresses and that i think i fundamentally agree with you rich is that actually the skill of laryngoscopy should not be removed from paramedic practice um and i i, I wholeheartedly agree with that because i think you know with foreign body objects you need to be able to see those in the airway you yep. need to be able to articulate that before you put an sj or indeed a, a, an et tube in but i also agree with both the consensus statement and and, and yourself we need to we need to be able to demonstrate, I think, to, to other providers that we are competent in this skill and, uh, and, and also um, successful so that our first pass rate is above 95% uh, consistently yeah. um, and that we're, we're seeing the patient cohort frequently enough to practice the skill frequently enough. Yeah. Um, because as me and you both know, it doesn't just come down to sticking a tube in, in the, into the... Um, into the trachea or through the cords. It's it's to do. It's it's more the fire, the the nuancing of stuff like laryngeal manipulation, sort of sort of looking at back upright pressure, getting someone else's fingers, optimizing the view, telling other people what you're seeing. Um, it's a good good laryngoscopy, good epiglossoscopy. I can never say that word. <laughs> epiglossoscopy. I don't try. <laughs> don't try. I don't try. Looking at, uh, at for the epiglottis for the molecular, and then and then um, and then putting the tip of the blade in there. Um, so so the, I think the, the consensus statement is quite clear. I think it's what you want from a consensus statement, which is actually a bit of clarity around the subject, yeah. um, and is that we should be quite rightly, as you say, we should be the the masters of our, our own destiny, and that we should be doing this, and we should we should be proving to others that we can do this, that we demonstratively can be can be um, proficient and effective in this skill yeah, um, because it's it's actually in certain cohort of patients absolutely necessary yeah, yeah um, so just just panning away from the consensus statement uh, for a second and looking at some of the literature around um, around um, ET tubes versus uh, versus superglottic devices. Now, uh, of course, there's the big there's the big trial, yep. which the the results are still out on, which is the Airways two trial. So we know uh, they've published the methodology for the Airways two trial, um, and I believe there was randomization of paramedics that could could intubate and would turn up and intubate um, certain cohorts, such as the cardiac arrest patients, and then they they went in with another cohort. I think it's four ambulance services they used. 
um, and 95 hospitals that they that they yeah. used. And then there's a cohort of patients um, where they trained the clinicians to use um, SGAs. So I think I believe it was IGELs, and that would be that would be their their line of uh, first line of um, of airway management, uh, and they wouldn't go beyond that. Um, so I, th- I think they've 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 ended the trial and they still yet at, uh, at this point haven't published the data or haven't published the results of the trial. But um, I do know that they've stopped um, they've they've stopped recruiting patients into the trial. So it'll be interesting to see yep. um, what they come up with and what the comparators are. It'd be interesting to find out what the results are and what uh, what um, it favours. But um, there has been um, quite a lot of empirical literature on on this subject. So, um, so we had um, a paper uh, from in 2018 in Emergency Medicine Australasia or EMA, which was influence of prospect airway management on the neurological outcome in patients transferred to a heart attack centre following an out of hospital cardiac arrest. So, in short, this was actually um, looking at the difference between um, ET tubes or, or intubated patients versus SGA patients in um, in heart att- so in in primary heart attacks and yeah. and and, the, and them being transferred to heart attack centers and sort of the neurological outcome so this paper what did this paper find so this paper found that the actual there was no difference in outcome so, so from tracheal tubes uh, versus superglottic airways, there was no difference in, in neurological outcome. Now, the neurological outcome was actually measured in, let's have a look. So it was, uh, it was CPC. So CPC is cerebral performance, the cerebral performance criteria one and two. So instead of the, uh, the ranking score, they went for CPC. Um, so cerebral performance category scale. And I believe cerebral performance, um, so sorry, the um, cerebral performance category one and two is the, is the best. So that's, um, that, that's uh, a favorable neurological outcome or a good neurological outcome. And that actually the results of this study showed that um, there was no difference um, from use of a, an ET tube versus an, a, a, a superglottic device. Now, actually, this is a specific patient cohort. Isn't yes, it, it is. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the heart attack cardiac yeah. arrest. Now, you'd hope that the heart attack cardiac arrest wouldn't hopefully produce too many. Well, there's still airway challenges, but yep. there's hopefully not a massive amount of chest pathology or. There, no. thereabouts, or where might there be some chest pathology? Um, I mean, yeah. The, so that's, I mean, it's a specific group of patients that it was, it was viable, and it, it um, one of one of the, the the problems, I guess, with with uh, this subject is actually the research is mixed mm. with this. So when you look at this from papers going back to the year, some will uh, tell you that there's actually increased survival with paramedic intubation. Some will tell you that there's increased mortality with paramedic intubation. Uh, their papers will tell you that more experienced paramedics will get uh, a tube in the right place uh, more often at the right time, uh, but that, that doesn't increase survival. And it becomes very difficult to pick out where we should begin as a profession as to, you know, is it an intervention worth doing? Are we good doing harm? Are we doing good? Uh, because you can find evidence of both. Now, one of the problems I find with the research out there is actually, so like with this paper, uh, it's done on a very specific cohort of patients. So this is cardiac arrest patients. Yeah. Uh, shows no specific survival or neurological benefit. benefit yeah. um, 
for or for or against intervention. For intervention. Yeah. In a specific group of paramedics being in a, in a specific way. Uh, the same with other other papers you look at will, will may, maybe follow Ambulance Victoria and they'll look at their success rates and mortality. You may look at an American system. And part of the problem, I think, when you're, when you're picking through this data is to try and pick out who's doing the intubation, mm. why and when and what patient cohort they're being used yeah. on and really drill down into the sort of sub-analysis of each patient group. Because probably as a whole, if you take cardiac arrest as a whole, um, there may be no benefit with intubation, but it doesn't mean all cardiac arrest patients don't benefit from intubation. Um, and that's where the real difficulty lies in picking this skill out as to whether or not we should be performing it and what benefit there is from it. So you're right, Rich. You're absolutely right. So this study was... Uh, um, so so uh, patient uh, recruitment was from um, August 2013 to August 2014. So so roughly about four or five years ago, maybe. Yep. Um, so uh, quite a while ago. Okay, so interesting things about that is there's 209 patients. So yep. not not a massive amount of patients, no. but 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 still significant amount. Um, but this, this, this patient cohort was probably before we were using mechanical um, chest compression devices. Now, what we have seen with mechanical chest compression devices is that actually some of the airway pressures from some of the pathology it creates in the chest can create higher airway yeah, pressures. Um, and um, I certainly don't think in thir- two th- from 2013 to 2014 we were using them in, in, in cardiac arrest patients. Now again, that just adds an, a different complexity to the mix altogether because, because we do know that actually it does create a different type of pattern of injury on the chest because yeah. it's, it's consistent at least, but it can be aggressive. We do see rib fractures, we do see some some barotrauma in the chest, um, and again, so that so you've got to really, con- like you say, contextualize these th- these results really, um, and it, in in that specific cohort, it doesn't show any any advantage to to intubation. But um, but what you do need to recognize is that the sample size wasn't large, largely a yeah. uh, uh, maybe a. Um, Looking at, at the general population, I think it was um, it was uh, single centered, so it, it had um, it was looking at just one center. I believe it was just uh, in the uh, London region. Um, I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, and um, and so it's hard necessarily. It's hard to extrapolate these results. Now the beauty of it, always two trial is that it's multi-centered. It's four different NHS ambulance trusts. It's ninety-five hospitals as comparators. There's the primary and there's a primary outcome. There's multiple secondary outcomes, but the primary outcome is essentially looking at intubation versus versus superclotted devices. I think that's quite a good point. You, you kind of touched on there with, with the Area 2 trial and with, with this matching. We need, as, so, so for paramedic practice in the UK, I think we need to look at the research around our patient and our group of, of patients. How good we are in this country, intubation, and how whether or not that promotes survival. Or, more, inter- more importantly, actually, whether or not it increases mortality. Because if it increases mortality, we need to look at that skill and maybe remove it. Um, or at least not use it routinely. Um, and the reason I say that is the UK system is a different system. So there are crossovers between where a lot of this research comes from. So most of the research is, is from the States or looks at systems in the States and, and uh, systems in uh, South Africa and Australia. Um, but there are differences in how paramedics are recruited, how paramedics are trained, when and why paramedics intubate and how they do it in all those different countries. 
And so the important thing I think you touch on with, with these with studies and trials is until we come up with an answer that looks at our patient cohort, it's very difficult to know for sure what we're doing right. And the way I was taught intubation would be very different to how a, a, mm. an American paramedic may have been taught. Mm. And be, there are differences between trusts in the UK and mm. there are certainly differences between systems in America uh, and Australia and everywhere else. So I think we need to certainly wait for these much larger trials yeah. and get some real good data before we, we jump to any conclusions. Um, because certainly there's evidence either way and there are, you know, but actually we need to know what our patient subgroup is doing yeah absolutely uh, before we make decisions yeah so i think i think quite rightly rich um, the 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 evidence is is still equivocal right now but i think uh, with with higher quality evidence out there and this multi-centered trial which is which i believe has recruited up to 3000 patients actually hopefully there'll be a little bit more distinction yeah. and there'll hopefully be a little bit more clarity amongst what which intervention is 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 better for the patient um, because it all comes down to patient care in the end, which is good. And so, and I think we need to be, when, when these trials are finished, we need to be receptive to what the answers are. Because, yeah, yeah. If it, certainly, if it shows that there's no um, benefit for primary intubation, uh, that's great. That's good. Then we can decide. Well, do we actually want to do it? Are we using our time wisely around the cardiac arrest? Can we eke survival? Out from somewhere else yeah but likewise if it does show increased mortality or, or in, uh, yeah, an increase in in neurological deficit post-survival uh, then actually that is we need to have a very professional grown-up conversation with ourselves as to whether or not we need to keep doing this yeah uh, I do agree because patient needs to survive yeah that's the point of yeah. why we exist yeah um, but yeah, you're right. We need to wait for the trial and response, and then be interesting to see what it comes up with. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So stay tuned for that one. Um, I think we'll definitely be wanting to critique that paper as and when it comes out. So just really quickly, Richard, I wanted to breach uh, something with you. Just to just broach this. Um, Breach, broach, broach, breach, approach, approach, approach. Yeah. Let's say approach. Um, a the topic of direct laryngoscopy versus video laryngoscopy, yeah. and um, it's certainly something within our skill set to to look at DL versus VL. Um, I think it, it's there's there's a wide variety of opinion out there, but I just wanted to get yours. And yeah, um, it's an interesting subject, and it's it's kind of growing. I think, isn't it? This this VL, and I think maybe it's a sign of the times that technology is being used to replace the human where the human airs, then technology can, can save us. Uh, I'm not sure I buy into it. Um, I think there's a place, definitely, for VL. Um, in my own practice, it has saved me, stroke my patient, um, from a few surgical airways. Mm. Uh, mm. Probably, maybe, let's say, maybe one a year. Mm. Um, and these aren't patients that perhaps I can't intubate, these are difficult airways. So airway burns, anaphylaxis, um, complete obstructions. High anterior um, larynx, yeah, angioedema. Yeah, so these are the, 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 the physiological, pathological reasons as to why I can't get a view to pass the tube. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important for me when I think about that. So uh, I'm not using VL as an initial airway tool. Uh, it is a rescue tool for me. That's, that's where it started from, and that's how I use it. Uh, it is becoming or starting to creep in uh, to systems as perhaps the tool of choice. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure yet I've seen enough of the evidence to suggest that uh, that it is or should be used like that. Uh, from my experience of using a few different devices, uh, the muscle memory skill is different. So the technique used is not the same as with DL. 
Um, so if you're just going to pick a device up and think that that's going to save you and get you a grade one or grade two view when you had a grade four, it isn't. It's not going to do that. Like anything, it takes time and it takes practice mm. to, to use it correctly and use it well. Having said that, one of the benefits is that, that you've got the screen. Yeah. So you've got an ability to remote view. You've got an ability for a second practitioner to look on a remote screen even bigger behind you. you. You've got the ability to be coached from outside of the airway. So all those things are good. All those things help if you're struggling. Um, and it helps to perhaps decrease your bandwidth because actually you don't need to talk through what you're seeing. People can see what you're seeing, which is all great. If you're having a problem passing the bridge, you're passing the tube, it can be managed by two of you rather than one. Um, I think there is some evidence out there perhaps that video luminoscopy has a better first pass rate, but that's provided paramedics have, or the people using clinicians using it, have a period of, of time embedded in with using yeah. the technology. Um, from what I've seen from the papers where people have just picked it up and used it, it's actually got a worse rate than, yeah. than DL, because paramedics are trained a certain way. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important if you're looking at bringing a device into your practice, understand its limits mm. and understand that you need, still need to be trained with it. You can't just pick it up and use it. That's the goal, certainly the nugget not, right there. Yeah, from... certainly not on a difficult airway. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wholeheartedly agree with you, Rich. I think um, you certainly have, there's a certain aspect of having to gild the lily. Uh, when I say gild the lily, I mean just hone your own practice with with direct laryngoscopy before you move on to video laryngoscopy. Uh, I think if you, if video laryngoscopy fails for, for any reason um, and you can't defer back to what a standard practice might be, which would be direct, then you're starting to disadvantage advantage yourself I think um, and I think there's far more nuances that you can that you can gild with direct laryngoscopy uh, outside of just sticking a blade in someone's mouth yeah um, I, I agree I think I think that my own personal opinion on the rise of, of video laryngoscopy is that it's it's a way to shortcut that training requirement that paramedics yes, need to continuously train yes, uh, yeah. it's a nice cheap way for maybe ish for trusts to bring in a device that may they feel may save them from uh, failure of a technical skill, um, but actually, I think you can that technical skill won't fail um, if you've got an experienced clinician with good um, good practice, good system, mm. good at regular exposure, and good training. Mm. Mm. Then actually, that system won't fail. Absolutely, and something that really demonstrates you touched on earlier that really, for me, demonstrates good emotional intelligence, good bandwidth, good situational awareness is that actually, when you know you're failing. Yeah. With, di with direct laryngoscopy and you can come out and go back to basic techniques and look around and go, do you want to have a look? Yeah. I have got no ego with this patient. Yeah, it's not absolutely. about me. It's about the patient. Yeah. Rich, step up. I will support you. Yeah. And actually, that I, I've got so much more respect for people that do that. Yeah, because uh, that, that, that they've got that show the emotional intelligence enough to, to know it's not about it's not about me. It's yeah. not about you. And um, it just, it's so refreshing to see, yeah, actually. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, actually, one of, one of the benefits, uh, although I'm perhaps not sounding like an advocate of VL, is that actually VL gives you the option of two of you seeing in one yeah. shot what yeah. one of you would have seen before. Yeah. And so then between the two of you, you can decide on a treatment path. So if, for example, you are going to move up to a surgical airway as a rescue airway, that decision can perhaps be made on the first attempt rather than having to have a, a subsequent attempt, which takes time. You've got to reposition. You've got to go again. Um... And so yeah, so perhaps there is some benefit there with that, um, but yeah, you're right, and it's and it is about 
if you need to intubate a patient, it's not who does it, it's the fact that it's done. It's done. It's yeah. important and it's done well and it's done timely. 100%, 100%. Right, so I just want to move on finally uh, within this episode to looking at something that we all fear um, that actually is something you have to probably practice quite a lot to retain competence at and that I've only done twice in my career and that actually is yeah is is, is not practiced a lot within prospect care which is front of neck access mm-hmm. yeah um, formerly known as the surgical airway um, and isn't necessarily something that um, every pre-hospital care provider would would maybe go to. I know surg- uh, sur- before the surgical crike came the needle crike. Yeah. Um, and the surgical crike is 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 offered by um, in critical care practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've only done two, mm-hmm. both really stressful actually but one probably less stressful than than actually the first one I did and a, a big awakening to actually the reality of actually formally pr- practicing the procedure versus practicing on a on a mannequin yeah. or a, on a dummy um have you have you had to do any have you had any experience at so all? I've I've got an N of zero yeah. so I've never performed yeah. uh, front of neck access or back of neck access back so <laughs> yeah I've never performed surgical airway okay. um Perhaps fortunately, the, the, the patient group I've come to, I've always managed yeah. one way or another to manage an airway. Yeah. Um, I've come very, very close, very yeah. close um, on a couple of occasions. Um, and there's nothing quite like the fear in your mind when you look down a patient's airway with DL or VL and you realise that you're not going to get a tube in. Yeah. Or you think you're not going to get a tube in. Um, because your brain then goes to, what are you going to do? Yeah. And the next thing is front of neck access. Yeah. And it is terrifying. Yeah. It Your really rectal sphincter tightens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You start to breathe faster. It, it is a whole new level. sort of level yeah. of, of fear, almost, actually. Yeah. Um, because this is yeah, this is quite serious. Te- technically, quite a, you know, a simple skill. Yeah. Um, but in terms of emotional control and what you're about to do, often in public, in someone's living room, yeah. in the street. Yeah. Uh, it's a huge decision, it's very yeah, big. It is. Um, and they say, actually, Rich, you're quite right, they say actually, the bit, the hardest thing about surgical area is actually the decision to do it yeah. in the first place and actually step up and do it. Because the procedure itself should hopefully not take any longer than about a minute, well, 30 seconds actually. Yeah. But um, I think that the more you practice and, and the more you the more you do on patients, it's 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 a probably a quick procedure. I think the the biggest thing I realise is, is it's actually a blind procedure because the, because the front of neck is so vascular yeah. um, that it's it's a blind procedure from the time you touch the scalpel onto the skin. Yeah. Um, and you're quite right. I think you've got to have some really good strong non technical skills to verbalise what you're just about to do and verbalise. That actually, guys, this is this is going to be a blind procedure because it is going to bleed. I need plenty of gauze in there. I need someone who just knows what's past me and when to pass me it right. So this is the scalpel. I'm going to get the scalpel. Um, we're, we're going to have um, this is the 6.5 tube or the six tube that you're going to use. This is the bougie. Um, I'm going to lay it to my right. I need you to pass it to me in this sequential fashion. Uh, these 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 are the um, the tracheal dilators, um, and this is how they work because they're sometimes quite counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, and just really quickly run through with someone or have someone who's quite well versed in it, because once you're there, 
and you make that hole in the airway and you breach the trachea, you, nothing comes out of that hole until, until yeah, you've got definitely. a tube in there. Yeah. Um, and it does just bleed and bleed and bleed. And so you really need to be, um, just be confident in your own practice, um, you know, and just, just, just make sure that someone else knows exactly what you're doing. Because if you don't share that mental model, I think you get quite a few. Yeah. Surprise looks when 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 you are going into the front of neck. So. And I think it's important. Is, yeah, it's, 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 it's termed as a rescue airway, um, but it isn't the easy option airway. No, it isn't. It isn't the easy option. No, um, yeah. it's very much a hard, difficult decision. Yeah, um, it isn't something you'll do a lot. Even you know, for people that tackle difficult airways quite a lot, as we yeah. do, it isn't something you'll do a lot. Yeah. Or it shouldn't be something you do. No, all. indeed. Yeah. Um, if you're doing five a week, yeah. uh, you're not <laughs> yeah. a specialist or something wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it isn't the easy option. And I think when you look at you can look on YouTube and you look at things and you know, there's kits out there that tell you that this, this can happen and that can happen. And actually, what you need to be very mindful of with paramedics that are sort of autonomous in their own practice nowadays, and they may be working abroad or they may be working uh, in systems that are less well governed or less, they're creating their own system. Uh, there's no replacement for training and there's no replacement for the psychology of understanding a skill. Absolutely. Kits will never replace that. Yeah. They may make things slightly easier, um, but they don't take away from the the feeling and the reality of scalpel to skin and having you know, someone that, that has done, not on a surgical airway, not on a front of neck access, but has, has used scalpel on a patient. Yeah. Um, for paramedics in the way we train, that's a whole new... Yeah. Uh, frontier yeah uh, and it's not to be underestimated yeah well. absolutely so they they teach you know with pa patients with big bull necks with um with a, a large amount of uh, subcutaneous um fat around the neck um to do a vertical incision first um so you can articulate the landmarks now that word that you need to be mindful of there i think i believe is articulate because you can't see the landmarks yep. because when you put scalpel to skin that bleeds so so much that you can't see the landmarks you have to feel them yeah. so the only reason you're introducing a vertical incision prior to a lateral incision which would be breaching the trachea through the cranchothyroid membrane would be to feel the landmark yeah. not see it yeah. because it bleeds copiously yeah. and so just you know people need to be mindful that look that vertical incision is not to see a thing you're just feeling if you can't feel the cranchothyroid membrane that's when you would feel it um, but yeah, absolutely, and you've got to make sure, like you said, you've exhausted all your other options, yeah. and the the team are all on board with what with what you're doing. And actually, you could do it quite quickly, um, and uh, and then, but we'll also recognise that actually it is quite a task fixated procedure and you're not going to be able to orchestrate scene leadership or management whilst you're doing that so what what i might say if i'm just about to do a surgical airway on a patient is rich could you just run the scene just run everything else while i'm just going to be task focused for a second guys i'm we're just about to do a surgical uh, airway on this patient this is the kit it's here you're briefed i'm briefed uh, i've got someone who's assisting me um it's over to you and i'll crack on with that I mean, one of the things psychologically to think about is that it's certainly what I've kept in the back of my mind when I've sort of approached these patients and thought this may be where I'm going, is actually there's no evidence base to suggest that these that the paramedic front of neck access creates survivors. Um, and these patients are very, very much last-ditch attempt at eking some survival out. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can just be a cowboy about it and, you know, not worry about what you're doing. 
but it's important to understand where these patients are when you undertake that skill. They're likely to have been in arrest for a while, prognosis is likely to be poor, and you're giving them every chance you mm -hmm. can, mm -hmm. but that chance may be slim at that point. It's important to understand that. Yeah, it is. It is. Absolutely. But likewise, it's all important to understand that you may well be doing it early in their pathology and you have to manage that airway afterwards. Yeah. And it isn't as simple to manage as, as an ET tube would be, as an oral airway. Um, these patients may well need sedation. They could be ketamine or midazolam sedation. They may need uh, paralysis. Um, and certainly it isn't something that if your scope of management doesn't allow you to care for them afterwards, shouldn't be doing it before absolutely absolutely so we're going to leave it there um, we're just going to give you um, what we're going to do we're going to give you three golden tips for managing airways so I think the first golden tip that I would give um, would be really um, hone down on your non-technical skills share that mental model early let the rest of the team know what you're about to do and what you've done um, and also what, what's working and what's not working and if you are providing laryngoscopy for the patient tell the people around you what you can and can't see because you are the only one with 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 visuals when you when you're doing DL so you really need to share that mental model early so that's my that's my number one golden top tip of the uh, of the episode rich have you got a uh, top i think tip? My, yeah my tip for so for paramedic intubation particularly is is to set yourself up to succeed mm. so look at the patient first uh, get your position right so have you got enough space can you do a kit dump get a kit dump done don't just drag stuff out of a bag as and when you need it get prepared for it create the space you need to do the skill well mm. do it once and do it quickly yeah. because you prepared well if you dive into it too early you'll set yourself up to fail yeah yeah i think that's brilliant i think it's absolutely brilliant and just finally um like we said before a fundamental principle that we all sort of live and die by is doing the, ba the basics well doing the essentials well and optimizing um essential adjuncts so optimizing the np and the op do the silo technique but just do it well measure measure the adjuncts uh, out well place them well and uh, and optimize that airway it may like which said get you out of hot water and and make mean you don't have to do advanced procedures Absolutely. And what it does is buy your patient time. So it allows you to oxygenate and ventilate the patient well enough to give you time to prepare for the next step. If you don't do that, you're always catching the patient up, you rush, you fail. So on that uh, golden note, we're going to leave you there. Thanks for uh, listening and tuning in and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. It's bye from me. And it's bye from me. Thanks for listening, guys. This podcast was presented by Owen Walker and Rich McGurr and any views we express are our own. And this is a Medics Academy podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide paramedics, nurses and doctors easy to access set of resources and education materials wherever you are. So take a look in the footnotes of this podcast and sign up to Medics Academy today to find out even more about what we do, how much content we put out there for your education.